Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. I'm Madigan, and you're listening to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist, a podcast that explores the world through a personal feminist perspective. Oh, what a beautiful morning. Oh, what a beautiful day. Oh, I've been listening to so much uh, World War II era music and stuff these last few days, this last week or so when preparing for this episode. And if you know anything about me, you know that I was raised on MGM musicals, and that's totally my vibe. And I'm going to get into that a little bit with this episode. But man, this was a really, really fun one for me. And I feel like it's so topically relevant right now because the Republican Party, the people on the right are rallying so hard against these drag shows. But there is this vast history of drag in some way, shape or form, you know, that goes back throughout history long, long ago. And even the people that we thought of as being the most manly men in the country dressed up in drag and wanted to have some fun. And I couldn't help but think of the hypocrisy of so many politicians in particular, which we're going to get into, who themselves have participated in drag shows of some sort, if you want to even call them drag, I guess, for some instances. Who was that guy where there was like the video from college that I talked about on the news episode who was just very badly wearing a dress and wig? Like, it wasn't cute, you know? But during World War II, they actually took these things really, really seriously. It was a very important part of boosting morale for the soldiers. And it was something that happened both in the United States and in the UK. But because of homophobia, of course, and the patriarchy, evidence of these shows has been hidden into these archives for many, many, many years. And I believe it wasn't until 2018 that there were photos uncovered of soldiers performing in these performances while in drag. And it wasn't like this was a new idea in World War II or even in World War I when this occurred a little bit as well. Drag technically has been on stage for a really, really long time. In the grand scheme of time on this earth, men would portray women in plays and other performances as women were not allowed to perform on stage in many societies. In ancient Greek theater, men played women as well as in English Renaissance theater. Japanese kabuki theater and Chinese opera houses also specialized in male actors who played female roles. What's interesting about kabuki is when it began in the 17th century, they were all female troops performing both male and female roles. But in 1629, a dispute of kabuki performances and their audiences led to the banning of women from the stage. However, because of kabuki's popularity, this led to the formation of all male troops to carry on the genre. In the era of the English Renaissance, William Shakespeare cast young men to play Juliet in Romeo and Juliet and basically all of his other shows... Charlie Chaplin played the role of wife in his 1914 film, A Busy Day, and he would go on to perform in three other films in women's roles, including The Masquerader in 1914 and A Woman in 1915. He would use the wardrobe of fellow actor Alice Davenport for his roles. However, the practice of gender impersonation was prohibited after the Motion Picture Production Code was passed in 1933, which aimed at eliminating what was seen as perversions and disallowed men impersonating women in film. This, however, was only temporary, as we will discuss both stage and film productions featuring drag in this story that happened after that time. To this day, we have specific roles that were made to be played by the opposite sex of the character, such as Edna Turnblad in Hairspray, a role originated by the legendary drag queen Divine. It is also common for the role of Peter Pan in the stage production to go to women, such as Betty Bronson back in 1924 and Mary Martin in 1960, a personal favorite of mine. Watching that movie as a kid made Peter Pan a dream role of mine, and it still is. It's also really common for women to voice male, specifically young boy roles in cartoons and other voiceover work. You don't have to worry about child labor laws when you can find a woman who sounds a little bit like a young boy. (laughs) 
Today's topic in particular, we will be discussing drag shows performed by soldiers for other soldiers during World War II. But let's talk about what drag culture was leading up to World War II a little bit. Of course, official drag shows originated in the 1920s, the Roaring Twenties, where women's skirts and hair got shorter, men began to care more about their appearance, and degradation and sin was considered cool and trendy by many. The original drag balls were first held in Harlem at the Rockland Palace. These shows depicted gays and lesbians impersonating the opposite sex and competing against one another in fashion shows, much like the drag balls you've heard of from the 80s to today. Harlem drag shows were made up of predominantly people of color, and I think this is something that's always really important to mention is that a lot of the gay culture and drag culture, trans culture, it all really originated from people of color, and I really applaud the Ryan Murphy show, Pose, for really highlighting you know, trans people of color and gay people of color to help explore that story a little bit further. So if you haven't seen that show, I mean, it'll absolutely wreck you. It's so emotional, but I highly, highly recommend it. It's very, very well done. So like I said, most of these shows in Harlem were done by people of color, but it wasn't like white people were excluded. They just typically wouldn't participate. Often these shows brought together people who were on the margins of society, and they often had to meet in secret. It wasn't until the 1970s that the term drag king or queen was coined, and more and more performances began popping up around the United States. Though the shows became more prevalent, it is important to remember the history of double standards when it comes to uses of drag. In male-dominated societies, a woman is seen as inferior to a man. So when a man would dress as a woman, they were therefore deteriorating their masculinity and becoming lesser than. It was commonplace in the early 20th century to see vaudeville drag performances. Fun fact I learned this week that the word drag is derived from the phrase dressed as a girl. Isn't that cool? I had no idea. These vaudeville drag performances occurred in a time when gender norms were strictly enforced and the performances allowed individuals to express their gender identity and challenge social norms in a more socially acceptable way. A few prominent drag queens at the time were Julian Elating, who was known as the Fascinating Widow, and they were the first American female impersonator to become a star on vaudeville. There was also Burt Savoy, who was known for his signature extravagant dresses, and Ray Bourbon, such a classic drag name, who was a Texan who had been dubbed the Queen of Vaudeville. I love that. And I was doing a little bit of reading about Ray, and they were something else. They released dozens of records and were probably the most prominent and influential influential gay female impersonator of his day. His lively career lasted from the 1910s all the way through the 1960s. Though it was popular for actors to perform in cross-dressing acts, once they became soldiers, the image changed a little bit, particularly due to the military's strict rules against homosexuality. Being gay anywhere at this time was tough, but there were a few pockets of refuge in the United States where one could be slightly more out. And I feel like a lot of artist types would typically be drawn to those areas. Although it's strange because I've done a little bit of reading about Vincent Minnelli's life, and that is Judy Garland's second husband. Second husband. Oh my God, I can't believe I just questioned myself. But allegedly, he was openly gay when he was living in New York. But then when he moved to Los Angeles and started working in film and his face became more known and all the things like that, they had to kind of start setting him up with women and things like that. So there's a lot about his sexuality that's like really questioned. But I know that at the time, there were so many PR experts in Hollywood that would work really hard to hush their hush the identities of their gay clients and things like that. But at the same time, in the artist communities as a whole, I think that they were a little bit more accepting of the gay community. So I feel like some areas would be like New York City and San Francisco. (laughs) Those are kind of the two places that you went. But in the military, they expect their men to be men. And that means no sissy stuff. When hoping to screen out any mentally ill individuals, the military asked every potential service member a series of questions on their sexuality. If you told the truth about being gay or lesbian, you would run the risk of being sent home and branded a sexual pervert. 
Anti-sodomy laws and regulations have been around since the Revolutionary War, leading in some cases to dishonorable discharge, courts material, or even imprisonment for military men found having sex with other men. However, until 1942, there was no specific rule against gay people joining and serving in the military. In 1942, the relatively new profession of military psychiatrists warned of the psychopathic personality disorders that could make gay men unfit to fight. The military also held a policy that all homosexual acts were a crime that merited discharge, which apparently gave way to the psychiatrist theory that homosexuality was an illness, and the sick person, not the act, became the target of the anti-gay policies and directives. Military psychologists created supposedly foolproof guides to ward off any gay people who tried to enlist. To help the examiners determine between gay and straight men, psychiatrists wrote lists of stereotypes which characterized gay men as visibly different than the rest of the population. And I know this isn't actually funny, but this did make me laugh a little bit because some of the signs to look for were an effeminate flip of the hand. Which is like still such a thing. It's like, gay, you know, it's just so funny. Or a certain nervousness when standing naked in front of an officer. Well, the second one just seems fair. I think that, you know, anybody standing naked in front of someone in a non-sexual way or in a very clinical way or whatever, like, I feel like it's just very awkward to be looked at naked. And I feel like especially historically straight men having to get naked together makes them really uncomfortable, you know? The military officially rejected about 4,000 to 5,000 men because of psychopathic personality disorders after examining nearly 18 million men. Yet, even with these unbelievably legit and scientific tests, many gay, lesbian, and bi men and women served in the Army forces during World War II. And though today's story does not specifically focus on gay men, I think it's important to note that the many ways that gay male culture flourished during the war, and I think that drag ties into that. There were even social networks of gay men where they could find support and love from each other while serving in the military. Once you were in and they discovered that you were gay, they gave you what was called a blue discharge, which sounds a lot like a bad yeast infection, but was kind of a common ground between honorable and dishonorable discharge. They were often marked HS or some other code for them being queer, so these records ruined many lives for gay men, not yet out of the closet on a personal level, and on a financial level, they were unable to receive any GI rights or benefits and were barred from getting many civilian jobs back home once they returned. There was far less representation of trans men and women in the military in World War II, but one of the most famous trans women of all time, Christine Jorgensen, had fought in the war after being drafted in 1945. After the war, she had gender affirmation surgery in Copenhagen, Denmark, beginning in 1951. When she returned to the U.S., her transition was the subject of the New York Daily News front page story. The headline read, XGI becomes blonde beauty. She became an instant celebrity and used her platform to advocate for trans people while also taking her fame and running with it by becoming a successful actress and nightclub entertainer. Other vets who have told their stories of coming out and transitioning later in life include Robina Asti, Louise Jennings, and Patricia Davis. I would love to read their stories as well and learn a lot more about Christine Jorgensen. She's, it's an interesting one. I love it. So getting back to the performances, if there was such a fear around appearing gay, how did these shows come to be? What was the point of them? And why did men have to dress as women? Well, logistically, it was rare for a woman to join the military. And once they were allowed to join, they were still segregated from the men. The women who were part of the Women Accepted for Volunteer Emergency Services, or WAVES, were allowed to perform with men and tour in all-female cast soldier shows, but the same opportunity was not permitted to the women who joined the Women's Army Corps, or WACS. WACS leadership believed that their female soldiers performing for the troops was controversial, as they were seen as too sexually risque to perform for all-male audiences overseas. It's always been the fault of the female body, hasn't it? Colonel Hobby barred Wax from singing and dancing in connection with any presentation. 
In fact, Hobby, as head of the Women's Interest Section in the War Department's Bureau of Public Relations, I'm so glad we had a man in charge of this position. He believed that wax needed to be protected in order to gain greater acceptance by the military establishments and public more generally. The women were told to tone down their femininity, something that is still practiced in military today, because of the patriarchal belief that femininity is a distraction to men and they simply cannot help themselves. And that idea is really interesting to me as well, because I feel like for a lot of lesbian women joining the military who did want to possibly express themselves in a more masculine way, or I mean, hey, I'm not a full-blown lesbian, I'm bisexual, but I, I do love to, you know, not always wear things that are stereotypically girly. In fact, I would say most of the time I don't really look that way, but... But I feel like it would be giving women a broader opportunity to be able to express themselves in different ways that's outside of the context of the gender norms in civilian life. And I find it really interesting because you'd think that the military industrial complex or whatever would still want to maintain this certain level of femininity and weakness, per se, within their female soldiers, though obviously they were not, you know, given the same opportunities or given the same respect as the male soldiers. But it is interesting to me that they would be encouraged to tone down their femininity when that was something during the time that was so upheld and cherished. So it is kind of a confusing circumstance. And I think that in a lot of ways, men and women in the past thought that by acting like a man, that's how you would gain respect. And I think that that's something that is still seen today. Like, I don't know why this came into my head, but I was just thinking of Elizabeth Holmes, the woman who did that, or she wanted to like do the blood drop test thing, whatever. Go watch the Amanda Seyfried series. It's really, really good. But she like, she made her voice super deep and only wore like turtlenecks every day to be like Steve Jobs and things like that. And that's a really great example of a woman feeling like they have to masculinize themselves in order to gain respect within a certain industry. And I think that that's really common. But anyway, so the woman weren't able to actually perform in these shows, but they were really, really helpful. And they coached the male soldiers in applying makeup and gave them feminization coaching and helped out with costuming when they could. And costuming could be difficult in remote overseas outposts, so they relied on USO and the Red Cross to ship costuming materials all around the world to ensure that no matter where the fighting may be, the soldiers could go on with their shows. And I'm going to talk more about the USO and the Red Cross shortly, so so hold on to that. Also, I wish we would put this kind of effort into school theater and other arts programs. For makeup, the men would use rice powder and a black pencil. And with their costumes, sometimes they had to get inventive, working with materials they had lying around like mops and scraps of fabric as wigs and coconuts as bras. In Alain Berube's book, another French spelling, it looks like. Coming out under fire, he highlighted some of the favorite materials among those stationed in the South Pacific, which included semaphore flags, mop heads, and various fruits. A drag show full of fruits. No pun intended? Of course, when this book came up in my research, I had to look into it. And uncpress.org says the book examines in depth and detail the social and political confrontation between the military and gay men, not as a story of how the military victimized gay people, but how the relationship between the two transformed both worlds. I really want to give it a read. Maybe that'd be a good Pride Month book. I don't know. I'll look into it. It was also made into a documentary, which I definitely want to watch, which features nine gay and lesbian veterans who told their stories. I'm definitely going to look that up. They discuss in the film what I mentioned earlier, that at first they were able to convene and find each other while in the military, but once the anti-gay laws began being more heavily enforced, they faced both a fight for their country and a fight for their right to serve. To me, I see a glaring hypocrisy between the worlds of embracing and celebrating these shows, which to many seemed pretty gay, while also persecuting the actual gay soldiers you're fighting beside. Straight soldiers received relief through the entertainment, and so did their gay counterparts. 
As stated in the book coming out under fire, drag performances opened up a whole new world to the gay members of the audience as well. The book states that the shows inadvertently opened up a social space in which gay men expanded their own secret culture. Like I mentioned earlier, the shows were of absolute importance to boost the morale of the soldiers who were fighting in dire circumstances, and even the toughest of military generals was on board with them. One of the major players in ensuring that the soldiers found some semblance of peace and happiness in the war was USO, the United Service Organizations. USO provides live entertainment such as comedians, actors, and musicians, and other acts to perform for members of the U.S. Armed Forces. They were founded during World War II with the goal of being the soldiers' home away from home. In the early days of war, Hollywood was eager to show their patriotism, and many celebrities joined the ranks as USO performers. They included Buddy Ebsen, the original Tin Man who almost died on set, Kirk Douglas, Bing Crosby, Kurt Vonnegut, or as my high school English teacher called him, KV, Clark Gable, Audrey Hepburn, Tony Bennett, Johnny Carson, Paul Newman, Marlene Dietrich, Mel Brooks, Johnny Cash, Mickey fucking Rooney, Marilyn Monroe, Elvis, and of course, Bob Hope. Growing up, I didn't realize how many war propaganda films I watched, but so many MGM musicals during this time, which were my favorite, Hello, Judy Garland, would depict soldiers performing in war or Judy's character going overseas to cheer up the troops with a song. In one movie, which was one of my favorites growing up that I just rewatched with Max about a year ago, called Me and My Gal, which came out in 1942, which I just learned was based on a true story of actual performers Harry Palmer and Joe Hayden. So cool. In which Gene Kelly smashes his hand in order to get out of serving in World War I. And so he and Judy can perform together at the Palace Theater. Of course, because it's propaganda, Judy leaves him when she discovers this, as well as learning that her beloved brother had perished in the war, and saw Gene Kelly's character as a coward. Fast forward, Gene joins the army as a performer and begins traveling around the world, and even eventually does some fighting with his good hand. So when Judy sees him in the end, while on stage at one of her shows for the soldiers, she forgives him, they kiss, and they live happily ever after. We're gonna build a little home for two, or three, or four, or more. moral of the story is, don't dodge the draft. This was a way, I'm sure, to encourage people to join the military and the war effort in World War II in a number of ways, showing that everyone can help support and defend their country, and the moral of it being that it's cowardly and selfish that you don't want to fight. But it really did show how important it was for these soldiers who performed in the shows in order for them to feel like they were still part of normal life, and I can't imagine how much that really, really helped their mental health. I remember when the war broke out in 2001, I always imagined myself stepping on stage in front of a group of soldiers or sitting at the bedside of the wounded somewhere and singing some songs. Too bad we don't do that anymore. Did I ever mention that I was like a super dramatic child? After a while, it seems that the performances relied more and more on fellow soldiers, many of whom were actors and performers in civilian life, but maybe not at the caliber of Mickey Rooney. And most of the performers after this point were mostly volunteers who dedicated their free time outside of battle to making the experience less stressful for their peers. The National Theater Conference lobbied to authorize soldier shows as a necessity, not a frill, and permission was granted by leadership in Washington for the special services, along with USO and the American Red Cross, to begin soldier productions for troops abroad and on the home front. The Army Special Services, or AS, <laughs> produced, published, and distributed handbooks for the shows called Blueprint Specials, which contained everything you needed to put on an approved show, including dressmaking patterns and suggestions for procuring fabric. In the pamphlet, girly choreography was also written in extreme detail so that the men looked good during their numbers. One particularly popular act was the Pony Ballet, where the most masculine men dressed in tutus and performed ballet routines, all while wearing their army-issued combat boots. There was another famous show during the war titled G.I. Carmen, which was a stage musical produced by the 253rd Infantry Regiment, 63rd Division of the U.S. Army, which also featured men in drag. 
A prominent writer for these shows was Irving Berlin, who was a soldier during World War I and a Russian Jewish immigrant who wrote many of the Christmas songs you know and love. Born Israel Berlin, he moved to New York City at the age of five, where I am assuming he started going by Irving. Along with Christmas songs like White Christmas and Happy Holidays, he also wrote classics like Alexander's Ragtime Band, Easter Parade, Putting on the Ritz, Anything You Can Do, I Can Do Better, and There's No Business Like Show Business Like No Business I Know Everything about it is appealing Everything that traffic will allow all right, before I get into discussion of this amazing show turned movie, let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. All right, I'm back. Let's talk about Irving Berlin's production, This is the Army. Irving once said, Songs make history, and history makes songs. It needed a French Revolution to make Marseille, and the bombardment of Fort McHenry to give voice to the star-spangled banner. I feel like Irving felt he could best serve his country by giving them entertainment, and I think that's a really beautiful thing, and it's something that I try to do myself. To get the ball rolling, he called General George Marshall in Washington to propose his new all-soldiers show. Marshall approved, and they began work on a morale-boosting show for their countrymen. Irving decided to call the show This is the Army, but just in case the Army didn't like it, he also had some backups such as This is the Navy or Air Corps. However, his heart was with the Army. He chose 24-year-old Ezra Stone to direct, who was a sergeant at the time, and he was already nationally recognized from a radio program called The Aldrich Family that was very popular. When Irving and Ezra met, Ezra had already been in the Army and is described as being a serious, heavy-set man. Let's not fat shame the guy, I'm sure he just had a looming presence, and he had already done some morale work before. Irving was notorious for writing his productions in just one month, and he expected to do the same with This is the Army. They held rehearsals beginning in the summer of 1942 at Camp Upton in New York, where Irving had overseen the creation of one of his previous productions. The building they rehearsed in was called T-11, and it was an old civilian conservation corps barracks. The next hurdle to climb would be a much more personal one. Irving had decided to add black soldiers to the cast. At the time, the armed forces were, of course, segregated. Somehow, he got the okay to add black soldiers to the production, but with some conditions. Black and white soldiers could not appear on stage together at any time, and there definitely could be no depictions of interracial relationships of any kind. So technically, Irving's This is the Army unit became the only integrated company in uniform. So this may sound like a super nice and forward-thinking thing of Irving to do, but it was really more of a business decision. It's super fucked up to admit, but historically, white audiences really enjoyed black performers, not because they respected the person or their talent or craft, but because they were seen as spectacles. But I'm sure Irving was also aware of the optics of having an integrated group in the army and welcomed any coming controversy. At first, Irving wanted the first half hour of the production to recreate a minstrel show, which to him meant 110 soldiers sitting on bleachers all in blackface. Thankfully, Ezra Stone stepped in and told him, Mr. Berlin, I know the heritage of the minstrel show. Those days are gone. People don't do that anymore. This didn't initially convince Irving, so Ezra thought of another approach. 
he brought up another potential problem with starting the show in blackface, telling him, how can we get 110 guys in blackface, then get them out of blackface for the rest of the show? Oh, I feel so gross even just saying that. Irving relented. There is a really, really wonderful drag number in This Is The Army, and I just got to play you a couple clips of it here, but I do want to play the entire song at the very end of the episode because I think that you'll really enjoy it. Pardon me, but aren't you the country maiden? That's my son, the fourth from the left. Come closer, won't you please? I'm about to take the squeeze. Very pretty, isn't it? He had to uh, join the army to get in the show <laughs> I'll also be sure to add the video to Instagram because you really do have to get the visual behind the song to truly see its its beauty, truly. <laughs> Besides showing an interracial cast, This Is Army and other so-called girly shows could have been criticized, especially considering that drag performance was virtually unknown or accepted in mainstream America in the 40s. Wartime propaganda, much like what I mentioned, was a big helper in this matter, as they reframed the discussion on wartime drag performances as normal male soldiers doing their duty to entertain their peers and promote good morale. Even the general and future president, Dwight D. Eisenhower, is quoted saying, The USO has given an impressive demonstration of the way people in our country of different creeds, races, and economic status can work together when the nation has dedicated itself to an all-out integrated effort. And this is really saying something. Having Eisenhower admit that we can be stronger together is something special in this time. And coming from a Republican? Damn. Hollywood propaganda also introduced the concept that although the actors may be entertaining, they are also American heroes who want to protect the country they love. Yes, they may be men in dresses, but they are still fighting to defend our country. This is the army open to a packed house on Broadway, and it included actual soldiers as the actors. The performers also included Irving himself, along with Burl Ives and the director Ezra Stone. The stage production raised $45,000 for the Army Relief Fund. It was turned into a movie a year later, with future President Ronald Reagan taking one of the lead roles. The film also depicted many actual soldiers as well. Unfortunately, the film did not depict Ronald Reagan in drag. Can you imagine? Proceeds from the show went to the Army Emergency Relief Fund, and the film raised an additional $10 million. So with these soldiers shows being so prominent and many movies and Broadway plays to come out of it, why are these stories so hidden? Why wasn't it until a few years ago that these photos are revealed and discussed? I know you're all screaming at me right now because homophobia, Madigan. Stonewall, which is considered the start and catalyst for the gay rights movement, wouldn't happen until 1969, which was 24 years later. The men and women who may have felt a sense of camaraderie among their fellow LGBTQ soldiers went home to put on a mask of straightness in order to continue to live in American society. The children and grandchildren of many of the soldier performances were shocked to see their hyper-masculine fathers or grandfathers dressed in makeup and skirts. Many of these pictures were taken by photographer John Topham, who was a Fleet Street photographer who used to take photos of the army for officials as well as newspapers. John visited the base of the Royal Artillery Coastal Defense Battery at Shornemead Fort near Kent, England. He planned to photograph the defensive capabilities of the base, but he was also interested in the drag shows. However, for more than 80 years, these photographs were hidden by the British Ministry of Information. There was one instance, while some of the soldiers were rehearsing for a drag show, the air raid alarm was set off and they were all sent to take arms and prepare to fight. While still donned in their dresses, the soldiers rushed to their designated stations and Topham took photos. There is even a photo that captures them preparing to shoot the enemy. If you want to see some of these, definitely reference the Instagram page. While these photos should be an indicator of the men's immense dedication to the cause, the photos would not see the light of day because the Ministry of Information felt it would lead to a mass demoralization of the nation. From historyofyesterday.com, not only that, but if the photos were to be shown around the world, it would make the British Army look like a weak enemy and a joke to their allies. They banned the pictures, but thankfully they didn't destroy them. They were kept in their war archive, only to be discovered a couple of years ago. 
After the war, probably at least partly as a result of so many gay men finding support amongst each other in the military, some gay and lesbian rights groups began popping up. In 1950, the Mattachine Society was formed by communist labor activist Harry Hay with a collection of friends from Los Angeles. Branches formed in other cities, and by 1961, there were even regional groups. Ironically, in the years following World War II, gays and lesbians were being tied to communism. The Cold War period gave rise to Senator Joseph McCarthy, who targeted deviants throughout the country as part of a larger project to rid America of its undesirables. This would be known as the Red Scare. Sounds a lot like the Lavender Scare, doesn't it? There was another group formed in the 50s by lesbians called the Daughters of Bilitis, which I know I've mentioned on this show in the past, which established to give lesbians refuge during a period of intense discrimination. They soon became the first lesbian political organization as well. The group believed in empowering and educating the gay person and the community at large about what it means to be queer by sponsoring public discussions led by leadership of the group. They were also dedicated to research projects by psychologists, sociologists, and other experts to gain further knowledge. And lastly, they worked to promote legal change in the laws against gays and lesbians. Of course, after Stonewall was when the movement really ignited, no pun intended, but we still dealt with so many issues regarding the gay community and the military. In the 1980s, the U.S. military decided to apply medical regulations more forcefully on those who were trans. In the case of Doe v. Alexander, where a trans woman had been rejected from the U.S. Army Reserve due to having had gender affirmation surgery. The Army made the case that supporting trans people would raise a medical problem in the form of hormone supplements not always being available to such personnel. In the 1987 case of Leyland v. Orr, ruled that Leyland, a trans woman who had also undergone surgery, was rightfully discharged as she was unfit physically to serve. The judgment also determined that genital surgery was akin to amputation surgery, which leaves soldiers unable to meet their demands. Are you fucking kidding me? Don't Ask, Don't Tell was adopted by the U.S. military in 1994, and the rule prevented service members from being openly queer without the threat of being discharged. It was based on the false idea that the presence of LGBTQ people in any branch of the military would undermine the ability of people to carry out their duties. But really, I think they didn't want to seem weak to other countries, both enemy and allies, because that was the perception of LGBTQ people, particularly gay men, at this time. Don't Ask, Don't Tell was finally repealed in full on September 20th, 2011, and service members who were previously discharged for their LGBTQ plus status were offered re-enrollments. In 2017, the Cheeto sent a hateful tweet saying that trans individuals would no longer be able to enter the military and that those currently enlisted would not be allowed to continue on in their roles. As we've learned on this show, the United States has a long history of trans people serving in the military, going back to the Civil War, if not even further back. From April 12, 2019 to January 25, 2021, trans folks could not enlist in the U.S. military if they had medically transitioned or had a history of gender dysphoria. They could only enlist under their gender assigned at birth after 36 months off of their meds. Currently serving individuals could only serve under their gender assigned at birth. From January 26, 2021 onwards, there are no restrictions on military service by trans people. Also, medical care for transitioning soldiers is provided by the military, or at least it should be, and procedures for handling transition in official records were established. So this is the landscape of how the LGBTQ plus community has been seen since the war ended. It wasn't a positive depiction. Many of the men who returned home after the war were unable to come out and live their lives in the closet because of societal prejudices against them. And the straight men who had a little fun playing dress up were too ashamed to admit that they had anything to do with something so gay. Republicans in particular have an interesting history when it comes to drag, and that is being highlighted now more than ever as we see more and more bans on drag shows across the United States. However, most of these Republicans are giant hypocrites. Here's some examples. Former Arizona candidate Carrie Lake, remember her? Insinuated that queer people are a threat to children. 
However, a local drag queen leaked that Lake had once brought her own child to a drag performance and that Lake herself had attended multiple performances. This drag queen was Barbara Seville, and they said, She's friends with drag queens. She's had her kid in front of a drag queen. I've done drag in her home for her friends and family. She's not threatened by them. She would come to shows constantly. To make me be the boogeyman for political gain, it was just too much. Before Donald Trump became president and Rudy Giuliani had wet shit running down his face in front of the Four Seasons total landscaping, the former New York City mayor dressed up in drag in a video for a charity event. The future president can be seen burying his face in Giuliani's breasts, motorboating him. You know, you're really beautiful. And a woman that looks like that has to have her own special scent. Oh, thank you. Maybe, maybe you could tell me what you think of this scent. Hmm, I like that. This, this may be the best of all. Oh, you dirty boy, you. Oh, oh. Donald, I thought you were a gentleman. Hmm. You can't say I didn't try. Of course, most recently we had George Santos, who has advocated against drag shows, yet has also done drag for fun. So Republicans really don't have a problem with drag. If they did, they wouldn't be doing it so much. What the Republican Party is doing by making such a fuss about drag shows is distracting their base from the real problems in this country, mostly guns. Gun violence continues to steadily rise, with mass shootings occurring daily in this country. But they don't want their supporters to focus on that. They would rather rile them up with fears of queer people grooming and brainwashing their children with drag performances, LGBTQ plus books, and other queer media. This is a really hot button topic for the right. Check out the comment section of any of my Instagram posts. This is their primary retort whenever the topic shifts to something more important so that they can control people into being so afraid of the world that they stay on their side. But what is the benefit? What do Republicans and the right get out of all of this vitriol? Who cares? Let people be themselves and stop bothering them. A big example that I'm thinking of right now is the controversy over the Bud Light commercials featuring Dylan Mulvaney, who, by the way, I am the biggest fan of. Oh, my God. And men are all in their fifis right now because they're not going to drink Bud Light anymore because Dylan Mulvaney was in one of the ads. And by the way, Bud Light sucks. Drink another beer anyways. And second of all, get the fuck over it. Dylan Mulvaney is a star and they wanted their star in a commercial. What are you going to do about it? All of these men are so upset and being like, men can't be women, yada, 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 in my comment section telling me I need to educate myself. All of this bullshit. When truly, they need to take a step back and educate themselves about gender and gender identity and the constructs, the patriarchal constructs that have been put upon us throughout our entire lives to behave and display ourselves in a certain way. And I don't know why these people feel so personally threatened or why they feel that they need to take so much time out of their day to write novels of a manifesto in my comment section telling me that I'm wrong when I'm not even reading them. <laughs> like I don't if I see a long comment by someone that I can already tell is being hateful, I'm skipping it. I'm not going to read it. You're wasting your time. And I think that's what's really frustrating to me is that this all really is just like the Wizard of Oz. You know, Oz was seen as this great and powerful, scary, scary thing. But really, he was just this meek man. For some reason, the right is relying on making drag shows being this big, bad, scary thing when really they're hiding behind the thing that is actually killing our children in this country, and that is gun violence. And I spoke about Ronald Reagan earlier on in the episode, who was a Republican president, but I just wanted to add this audio of him discussing his views on assault rifles, because I think that if Republicans today would agree with this, the world would be a better place. This is a speech he gave January 1989. And I do not believe in taking away the right of the citizen to own guns for sporting, for hunting and so forth, or for home defense. But I do believe 
that an AK-47, a machine gun, is not a sporting weapon or needed for defense of I mean, never in my life did I think that I'd be rooting for Ronald Reagan in that moment, but holy shit, <laughs> Republicans today would hate him. So yeah, that's why I think this is so important to discuss. This is something that's been going on forever. Both Republicans, Democrats, the like, have enjoyed drag in some way, shape, or form throughout history, since the beginning of time. And it is strictly just our ideas and views about these things that manipulate our culture into believing that they are lesser than or bad or weak. And the fact that this started with marginalized people predominantly, I think that's another reason why it's it's been seen as a lesser art form as well. So next time you have any right-wing fascist person in your family go off about drag shows, talk about what is really harming our children right now, and that is gun violence in our country. All right. Thank you so much for listening to another full-length episode. I do want to announce, first and foremost, that there will be a new Patreon episode up this week. So be prepared for the second episode covering Women Talking by Miriam Taves. I've been talking about this book forever, it seems like. Thank you so much for all of your patience. This past month has been so nutty with wedding preparation and kind of overworking myself right now in order to hopefully leave my retail job. So things are I literally have no time. So thank you so much for really um, just being there for me and being so cool with everything. But shortly, I should really be picking up a lot of the content on Patreon, and I am very, very excited to do so. So if you want to join the Angry Feminist Book Club, please go to patreon.com slash angryneighborhoodfeminist or go to the link in the show notes or in the Instagram bio. There's also an $8 level where you get all of the book club content, but you also get these episodes ad-free. And every once in a while, I'm going to pop on and share some stories. I most recently uploaded an extra topic that I was unable to fit into a mini episode. So things like that, little extras that I don't want to share on the main feed or that's going to make it run too long or whatever, I will be putting up in Patreon. So definitely go check that out. Join the fun. I also want to remind you all that there are a few ways that you can support me in the show. First and foremost, if you could please go to Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review with a quick sentence about why you enjoy the show, I would be eternally grateful to you. If you listen on Spotify, you can also rate the show over there. Another way that you can support the show is by interacting with any of my sponsors. I only discuss products and services that I truly can get behind and that I feel, you know, proud to talk about. So if you need anything from that, please use my promo codes. It's a great way to show support to yourself and to me and the show. (laughs) And I really, really appreciate it. I'm going to be playing the whole chorus girl song at the end of this episode. So definitely enjoy that. But that is all I have for you today. With all of that being said, I encourage you to rage on. Bye. Sergeant McGee, <laughs> and I thought I knew men. Ladies on the chorus, that's what we are, it appears. We were inducted and we took a bow. We joined the army, but look at us now. Ladies of the chorus, don't we look lovely, my dears? In corsets and dresses. And cute golden dresses To hide the dirt behind our ears I was a plumber, I quit work last summer My number come up at the start I was a printer, I quit work last winter The yoke hate my lungs and my heart 
I was a farmer, potato and bomber. They took me away from the plow. I was a packer, I chewed plug tobacco. I wish I had some of it now. Oh, now we're in the chorus. Dressed up in girdles and squeeze. We're here to romance with. To sing and to dance with. A bunch of dirty guys like these. That's my son, the fourth from the left. Come closer, won't you please? I'm about to take a squeeze. Very pretty, isn't it? I will give your face a slap. Yeah. He had to join the army to get into show business. She will treat you like a queen, but I'm only 17. If you're a 17, it's so's my aunt. Woo! I hope I want you to behave. Do you think that you can get me into pictures? If you're nice to me, I'll get you on the screen. How about a movie test? Not with hair upon your chest. And now it's time to dance, but keep it clean. Six girls. I'm Cassie Waters. Bridget Nilsson. Mariella Williams. I'm Gloria Smith. I'm Annabelle Crow. I'm Nadia Olson. One book. Light fades, dark ascends, and whisper in shadow. And a demon from hell. Calling Darkness, available wherever you listen to your podcasts.